than the Struce. Congratulations, you've made it. In this podcast, I'm going to read a post by C. Tilly called Why Scientific Research is Less Effective in Producing Value Than It Could Be, colon, a Mapping. And I may read from some other posts, including some of my own discussion work. Uh, the theme of this episode and perhaps the next episode or two is going to be this area of yeah, why, what are the limitations and what things are holding back academic research from being useful and productive? What are some obvious limits and wasteful practices in the academic research community? Um, and it's going to be bringing in a few perspectives, both in the natural sciences, uh, which uh, Tilly and others are, are most familiar with, and the social sciences, which I'm more familiar with. And also going to engage how important a problem is this. We're going to think about that. And for people who are consider themselves effective altruists, particularly for people who are concerned, concerned with, in one case, the long term, uh, I'm you're probably familiar with the idea of long-termism and particularly concerned with existential risk, um, is open science, are the things associated with the open science movement, which will be some of the sort of reforms that will be discussed here, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And is it an important, if it's a good thing, is it an important enough thing that it should be a, an important cause area, something to really advocate for? Okay, so a little housekeeping. Uh, if you guys don't like housekeeping, maybe this will take 30 seconds. Uh, so I'm David Reinstein. I do work at Rethink Priorities as a researcher, but just uh, this podcast and these readings and the, the comments that I make on these readings, first of all, as everyone says, they're not the opinion of my employers, dot, dot, dot. That's kind of boring and obvious. Second of all, I'm actually not doing this as a project that's in any way tied to Rethink Priorities. It's not being done on their time. It's not being hosted on their channel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for various reasons, you know, Rethink Priorities is not really moving into the podcast space right now. But why am I doing this? As I said in a few previous episodes ago, a few previous episodes ago, I think... Audio content is very helpful. We don't have enough audio content in the space, this area of things that are discussed on the EA forum and in Global Priorities. Um, I want to read these things anyways. I think that while I'm doing so, it's helpful to produce this audio content and it's a good motivating device for me. Okay, I'm not really convincing you to listen to it by saying that. And... Um, I think, you know, you could say, well, we could digitize these stuff, but I think the digitization is just not quite there yet. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's good to listen to digital voices, but there's something special about uh, a human voice that the digitization doesn't yet accommodate. And uh, given the, the value of, of, these, of, this, of these forum and, and some of the things I'll read, to the audience, I think that it's it's just worth it putting in that little extra time to have that, that human touch. Um, okay, again, why scientific research is less effective in producing value than it could be a mapping by C. Tilly, posted on 14 June 2021. Uh, they got 82 upvotes, 30 comments, 
pretty active conversation. Meta-science, academia, these are the tags, meta-science. Uh, by the way, we have a meta-science discussion group in one of the Slack channels of EA Global. Uh, academia, research methods, grant making, impact assessment, and scientific progress. And the contributors were uh, David Janku, who is the head of, uh, or he's the director of Effective Thesis Project. Uh, myself, David Reinstein, uh, we, I, I gave some feedback. Um, thirdly, uh, sorry, my computer froze there. Thirdly, Ido Arad, who's very active in, in, the, in our group on meta science and effective altruism. Georgios, I might be saying his name wrong, Georgios or Georgos Kaklamanos, and Sophie Schaumann. Introduction. Research has produced and is producing a lot of value for society. Research also takes up a lot of resources. Global spending on R&D is almost 1.7 US, 1.7 trillion US dollars annually, approximately 2% of global GDP. And that source is from UNESCO. I don't know if it includes sci all science or not. This is an attempt to map challenges and inefficiencies in the research system. If we address these challenges and inefficiencies, research could produce a lot more value for the same amount of resources. The main takeaways of this post are, there are a lot of different issues that cause waste of resources in the research system. In this post, these issues are categorized as one, related to one, choice of research questions, two, the quality of research, and three, the use of the results produced. Though solutions and reform initiatives are outside of the scope of this post, there does seem to be a lot of room for improvement. And here I feel compelled to plug my own proposal or my own discussion uh, of what I called uh, the unjournal or evaluated projects repository, uh, which I'll hopefully get to in another podcast. Uh, you can, as a, this is a possible solution to some of the inefficiencies and limitations in publishing, you can find it at bit.ly, bit.ly slash unjournal. Those being the three main takeaways. A lot of different issues that caused waste, categorization of choice of research questions, quality of research, use of the results produced, and there's room for improvement uh, in terms of solutions and reform initiatives. The terms value and impact quote, are used very broadly here. It could be lives saved, technical progress, or better understanding of the universe. The question of what types of value or impact we should expect research to produce is a big one, and not the one I want to focus on here. Instead, I will just assume that when we dedicate resources to research, we are expecting some form of valuable outcome or impact. I will attempt to map inefficiencies in how that is produced. This post came as a result of a collaboration that came out of the EA Global Reconnect conference, something I mentioned. After the conference, a group of EAs interested in improving science started recurring co-working sessions to discuss ideas for related projects and forum posts. I have received invaluable support and feedback from many people in this group, particularly those mentioned as contributors above. The plan is that contributors to this post and perhaps others in the group will follow up with additional forum posts on meta-science that focus more on specific issues, initiatives, or solutions. David Reinstein, myself, is working on a post titled Slaying the Journals, linked a proposal for peer review 
slash rating archiving and open science aimed at avoiding grant extracting publishers, reducing careerist gamesmanship and making research more effective. There are many previous initiatives that I am not aiming to cover here. Just as examples, Open Philanthropy has previously published several pieces related to meta-science, and Center for Open Science is working to improve scientific research with a focus on improving transparency and reproducibility. My hope is that this mapping could be of use to people who want to get an overview of the issues of issues in the research system and to initiate a discussion about potential valuable projects or interventions. That was the introduction. Section one, overview. The causes of efficiencies in the research system can be roughly categorized into th in three areas. One, the choice and design of research questions can be flawed. Two, the research that is carried out can suffer from poor methodological quality and or low reproducibility. And three, even when research successfully leads to valuable results, they're not adequately incorporated into real-world solutions and decision-making. Each of these three areas can be broken up into underlying drivers, many of which fit into the broad categories of one, publishing, two, funding, and three, culture. Figure one, and here you might want to look at the, uh, the sort of flow chart here. Um, if I can figure out how I'll post it into the podcast material, figure one shows the three main problem categories described in this post in the structure that builds on the idea of a problem tree. Okay, so it's not quite a flow chart, and there was a link to this thing called problem tree, urbact.eu. Um, the main problem that is in focus, research is less effective in producing value than it could be, is placed at the top. And root causes of that problem are written out below with arrows indicating causal relationships, or I suppose hypothesized causal relationships. Uh, it's fun, it, I, I would, I'm used to having the sort of outcomes be at the bottom rather than the top, but there's, I can see putting it at the top in to terms of highlighting its importance. So we see uh, this tree thing. I'll describe it to you because it's meant to be audio content here. Uh, improving research problem trees titled. At the top, we have this outcome. Research is less effective in producing value than it could be displayed in a sort of bold blue box. There's three arrows leading to this. Uh, three direct, directed arrows, whatever you want to call it. Directed, I always forget whether it's called nodes or edges in maths. So one arrow is poor choice of research questions. Another, another, sorry, one arrow comes from a box titled poor choice of research questions. Another from a box in the middle titled poor quality reproducibility. And the third from results not used in the real world. There's a line drawn below this and the three things mentioned before, publishing, funding, and culture are given their own boxes, but not directly tied into to, to the rest of the tree. Um, yeah, they're also called underlying drivers, those three boxes. In the sections below, this problem tree will be expanded by focusing on one of these three issues at a time and exploring the underlying causes for why it occurs. Concepts that correspond to a box in the problem tree will be written in bold. 
there are clearly other ways in which resources are wasted within the research system that are not covered here, e.g. time spent on resubmitting proposals or papers without having received constructive feedback or just poor time and project management. Uh, to make this mapping a manageable task, I have opted to only include issues that could jeopardize the entire value of the research output and not anything that, slows that only slows down progress of a given project or makes it more expensive. Okay, uh, coming from my background as an economist, I sort of find it difficult to separate those two things, um, to separate cost from, from everything else. Um, okay, continuing. Finally, many of the identified root causes might not be consistently problematic. They might just, might be an issue in one field, but not in another. Or it might be that some people see them as a problem, whereas while other people see them as functional, see them as useful, see them as a feature, not a bug, as people say. I've chosen to include root causes where there seem to be either one, good reason to believe they are a significant driver of the problem that they are pointing to, or two, there seems to be a widespread notion of them as being a significant driver. The reasoning behind this is that on the one hand, is on the one hand that it would be very difficult to consistently judge and rank the magnitude of different drivers, and on the other hand that just eliminating drivers that I don't believe are significant could make the mapping appear spotty. As an example, I might not think that restricted access, I guess restricted access to journals and such, is one of the most important problems in science, but excluding it from the mapping would seem weird since so much of the attention in meta-science is focused on open access solutions. Okay, so that was the overview. And the first, um, I guess, what does she call it? Not driver, but the first uh, area uh, first area of inefficiencies in the research system that's argued is poor choice of research questions. The choice and design of research questions for a project are fundamental for the potential value of the results. Many times, it will be a matter of values, priorities, and ideology to determine what constitutes a good research question. One person might find it extremely important to investigate how the well-being of a cat is affected when it is left alone during the day, while someone else might think that this is a terrible waste of resources. My main focus here, though, is that a research question may be flawed in ways where it does not fulfill the intentions of either the entity that funded the research or the needs of the intended target group for the results. Okay, and there's a link here to the Lancet, an article in the Lancet journals. Uh, Avoidable waste in the production of reproducible, production and reporting of research evidence. Uh, I'm not going to read that article right now. Okay, so the main focus is though it may be is that basically she's saying it might be flawed, both for the funders and for the target group, whoever the target group is. Figure two presents a mapping of underlying drivers for poor choice of research questions. The direct causes that have been identified are the difficulties of getting an overview of a field, the, 
publishing priorities of journals. So these are the underlying drivers for poor choice of research questions. Difficulty of getting an overview of a field, publishing priorities of journals, funding priorities of grant makers, short-term projects, lack of creativity or boldness, and a lack of connection with the quote end user in the design of research questions. All of these have underlying drivers. Some are also interlinked with each other. As an example, the arrows illustrate how publishing priorities of journals is a cause for publication bias, which in turn is a cause of that, is a cause of the fact that it is difficult to get an overview of a field, if I understand correctly here. Okay, so, uh, oh, then she says, note that this kind of problem mapping can be used to construct a theory of change for an intervention targeting one of the root causes. Improving the publishing priorities of journals could reduce publication bias and make it more manageable to get an overview of a field, which could lead to better choice of research questions and more effective value production of research if we take it all the way to figure one. At this point, I'm a little puzzled by some of the connections that the author is uh, making here, that, that Tilly is making here. Um, so just to define some things as I see them, uh, one thing is that uh, the publishing priorities of journals, you know, that's really, I want to separate that from the, the, the publishers that take the profit from the journals and run the business side of the journals. They don't really have much say in it. It's the academics who are the editors, at least, you know, from my experience, who are the editors and associate editors of the journals who decide what is, quote, important to publish, valuable to publish, um, and very often, my impression is that they're not thinking about this in always independently and, and, yeah, whatever you want to say, platonically. They're thinking about this in a sort of second-order belief sense about really taking into account what other people feel is important to publish. Um, you know, you can argue that there's some reasons that you should l look to other people's opinions. I know in... in in the epistemology side of, of, of EA discussions, it's often brought up that I shouldn't update only based on my own beliefs. But anyways, I'm going off on a tangent there. Um, so the publishing priorities of journals, the funding priorities of grant makers. Um, so uh, she says that the publishing priorities of journals is a cause for publication bias. Now publication bias, I often hear discussed in terms of yes, okay, yes, perhaps certain areas don't get published, but the main thing that one hears is that so-called negative results, results that are either, that basically fail to find in the classical frequentist statistical terms a rejection of the null hypothesis, uh, those papers, it very, those types of results tend to be very hard to publish. And there's some discussion saying that they should be more one should be more able to publish it to avoid this certain ways in which the literature will get distorted and that the findings, the consensus of the literature will get distorted. Um, and there's certainly a case that, that uh, some, let's say, negative is probably a confusing word, but some results that don't, that if you were using statistical standard cl classical statistical testing rather than say Bayesian testing, you would fail to reject a null hypothesis. Some of those results can nonetheless be extremely informative, particularly if the uh, 
let's suppose the null hypothesis was even the conventional wisdom, but we weren't sure whether the conventional wisdom was correct. And by the way, this points at another potential source of bias towards either there are other, sorry, let me get to that in a moment. Suppose that was the conventional wisdom, and suppose that I found evidence that failed to reject the null hypothesis, where the null hypothesis was a, you know, a zero effect of something that the conventional wisdom says should not have an effect, dot, dot, dot. Um, going off on a bit of a tangent here, but the point is that that can actually be informative, okay? If I've picked a question, if I've picked a question where there, it, in, there's at least some uncertainty and there's not complete, already a super strong consensus evidence on the thing that I'm testing, and, and in this case, in a sense, failing to reject, pretty, bringing more evidence in can help us update our beliefs and be more confident in our beliefs about this, this thing that is perhaps the conventional wisdom, but perhaps also not universally accepted. Um, that can also be particularly valuable, uh, this sort of evidence, where the evidence is, is strong so that you have, let's, in a loose terms, you often have a lot of data and, and sort of little uh, residual variance so that you can, you might have had a loose uh, prior, you might have had a very diffuse prior before that, yeah, we think there's a zero effect on average of this, but we are, our range, our 80%, 90% confidence interval could include very large, very small effects. After this evidence, one might then be able to update towards, okay, now our 80, 90% confidence interval is only, um, or, or credible interval, or consistent interval, some people say, is, is now at most, there, not, our 80 to 90% of our, of our probability mass of belief is that at most there'll be only a very small negative or positive effect. Anyways, that tangent was a bit too long and perhaps not structured enough, but the point I'm trying to get at is that um, uh, she says that the publishing priorities of journals are cause for publication bias. I talked about bias towards, quote, positive results rejecting the null or strong evidence in a certain direction. Another bias people talk about is that there's a bias towards not rejecting the the, the authorities or towards towards finding things that are consistent with the powerful people who found who have maintained that certain results are true in the profession another bias I've talked about I've heard and talked about is bias towards novelty so publishing the surprising and not the unsurprising results anyways so there's publication bias perhaps in journals but she says that's a cause of it being difficult to get an overview of the field I'm not sure what that ladder connection mapping is. It, it can be hard to get an overview of the field. Uh, overviews of the field, if we want to get an overview of the field, we might read textbooks, we might read a literature review, uh, either published on its own or as an introduction to a, to a paper that, that, that is feeling that it's worth presenting background, and, um, or meta-analysis. So we might, it might be, so it might, in fact, there might be a lack of such things uh, perhaps it's hard to publish those things or people don't find, in the sense, they don't have the incentives to publish those things. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, it might also be the fact, might also be that those, let's say, meta-analyses that are published are, in fact, biased in some way because of this publication bias. But that seems a little bit different than the issue of it being hard to get an overview of the field, so I don't see quite the connection between publication bias and 
the difficulty of getting an overview of the field. Okay. Note that this kind of problem mapping can be used to quickly construct a theory of change for an intervention targeting one of the root causes. Improving the publication priorities of journals could reduce publication bias and make it more manageable to get an overview of the field, could lead to better choice of research questions and more effective value production of research if we take it all the way to figure one. Okay, so um, figure two is now presented here, improving research, a problem tree. It's rather more involved. Everything is leading in this diagram to poor choice of research questions. Um, there's a number of uh, boxes in dark and light, or medium and light blue. Um, and I think, uh, I think she, the, okay, the dark blue are the, uh, are the direct causes that we discussed before, just now. The light blue are, I guess, things leading to that, but there are also some mediating channels in this, in this, what do you want to call it, causal diagram, problem tree. Um, so for instance, and then there are different areas that are in shaded regions and others that are outside of those regions altogether. So one shaded region is publishing, difficulty to get an overview of a field, and publishing priorities of journals. So publication priorities of journals, as they said, has an arrow, there's an arrow point from that to publication bias to difficulty of getting an overview of a field, and then ultimately to poor choice of research questions. Um, there are two other things leading to difficulty to get an overview of a field. Uh, which have no antecedents. One is just lack of reviews. I think she means review articles. I would suggest that there's some antecedents to that too. Uh, incentive, lack of incentives for those things, perhaps. Another is restricted assets access. And uh, you know, I th I think while it's true that researchers mainly can get access to all the publications they want, it can be slow uh, in terms of going through the different systems for unlocking paywalls and things like that. So that as you're doing that, it can be a bit distracting. So it's not that always I can easily skim through all of the relevant articles. Well, this is my own uh, thing here. And also, some of the most relevant overviews in the past have been in these handbooks, which are ex very often the hardest to access, most locked up under paywalls. Uh, one has to go to a physical library in some cases, um, which you know doesn't sound like a tragedy, but it can certainly slow down the, the process. Um, okay, what are some other interesting parts of this? You'll probably get this later. So one area is publishing, another is funding. Uh, so funding, one of the big blues is funding priority of grant makers. An antecedent to that in this diagram is difficult to measure research impact. Um, funding priorities of grant makers, she draws an arrow from that to lack of creativity and boldness. Uh, as well as poor choice of, which then in turn leads to poor choice of research questions. Um, so funding, short-term funding leading to insecure positions, also leading to short-term projects. Another big wing here is culture. Uh, so fear of scooping is a starting point. Fear of controversy and fear of failure are all starting points in this diagram leading to poor mental health among junior researchers which she sees the channel there as lack, going to lack of entrepreneurial skills and research teams, and then lack of connection with end user, and then the poor choice of research questions, as well as lack of creativity and boldness, if I'm seeing the arrows correctly. 
okay, well, I think you get the idea here. Let me move on. The next is difficulties of getting an overview of the field. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons why research questions might be poorly chosen can be that it's difficult for the researcher to get a good overview of the field, identify the relevant unknowns, and have a clear picture of the state of the evidence. Uh, so I would say the whole analogy about standing on the shoulders of, of, of giants, one needs to find where those giants are and which shoulders you should be standing on. Partly, this might be an unavoidable consequence of a rich and intricate research field with a long history. It may take a long time to go through the previous work and to understand the underlying building blocks and tools supporting later work. Nonetheless, there are a few factors that make the situation worse than it would have to be. One important factor is publication bias. This is the tendency to let the outcome of a research study influence the decision whether to publish it or not, as I discussed. Publication bias influences both what researchers choose to submit for publication and what the journals choose to publish. Generally speaking, a study is more likely to be published if a statistically significant result was found or if an experiment was perceived as, quote, successful in some sense. This may give the impression that a specific hypothesis has never been tested, when in fact it has been tested once or more, but the results were not deemed publication worthy. Uh, this may give the impression that a specific... The tests may have proved inconclusive, perhaps because of methodological barriers, mistakes that may be repeated in future work, or extremely noisy processes, which also might make you want to think in future work that this might be something that would be hard to investigate in this way. You might need larger sample sizes. Even with sound methodology and strong statistical power, the results might simply be deemed as too boring for publication. Okay, this somewhat gets at what I said before. Uh, and I think it's not an idea, the difficulty here of getting an overview of the literature as in what's published and what's deemed important and successful, but not getting an overview of the practice of, of, the, of the actual facts of the methodological stumbling blocks that isn't really part of the literature. Uh, so, you know, if, if every time someone goes into this field, they step on a rake, uh, and then they don't go into the field and don't tell anyone about it, then the next person goes in and steps on the rake. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, maybe the, the, the idea being that the literature review or, or some sorts of literature review should really be uh, embodying these, I don't know, failures or limitations. Um, that, that's getting at the methodological uh, problem. The problem of, quote, no results, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's something that, that I think people have thought about dealing with and, and are dealing with to some extent uh, by being things like registered reports where people can get, quote, things committed to be published not based on the results, uh, registering experiments and hopefully sharing all of the data. I mean, and with all of this stuff, I think there should needs to be incentives and, and rewards to the people who do these things. Um, but yeah, it's not certainly not a solved problem. Another hindering factor is the lack of good review articles. Review articles survey and summarize previously published studies in the specific field, making them an invaluable resource to researchers. However, reviews are not always done in a systematic and transparently reported way. Here she links a conversation article, which can lead to a misleading impression of the current knowledge. It also happens that both previous research and reviews are ignored 
when designing research questions. Uh, and here she links to an article in, well, posted on a, the, from The Lancet. Uh, okay, it's taking a moment to come up. Uh, there, we, we witnessed the problem. It's on Science Direct. There's a whole log in there. Okay, so previous research interviews are ignored, is the claim, when designing research questions. Again, to chime in with a little bit of my own perspective and, and perhaps validation, uh, I think that's right that in my field, review articles are, or in the fields that I'm, I'm familiar with, people uh, are often encouraged not to write review articles. It's hard to publish them in, at least until you're sort of seen as a, a, an esteemed head in your field. Uh, they're sometimes not seen as, quote, real research. Uh, similarly with meta-analysis, me you know, more syst well, quantitative systematic analysis of previous work. Um, uh, other problems, even when people are presenting papers and, and in seminars, at least in economics, there's always this push, just go past the literature review. We don't want to hear it. We want to hear what you did. We don't want to know what the state of the literature is, which is kind of relevant, perhaps if you're thinking I'm just judging someone based on their skills, if this is a little jump through the hoop contest. Uh, and this gets it, by the way, the dual role of publications and seminars. Um, so maybe then I don't need to have them present what's been done by others. Although still, you'd want to know that they have an appreciation for what's done. But if I actually cared about getting to the answer to this question, I would really, in ev every time I consider the research, want to consider the results in light of what's been previously done and what the consensus is. A third factor could be the issue that much research is published with restricted access. This makes it expensive, very expensive, to legitimately ac access research papers for someone who does not belong to a university that pays subscriptions. However, there are library websites. Uh, Sci-Hub, whose legality has some issues, the, there's, there's sort of attacks on it. Sci-Hub for papers, LibGen for books, that provide access, free access to millions of research papers and books without regard for copyright. Uh, this is not an optimal solution and there are issues with the sites being blocked in many countries, but they, make, they do make restricted access less of a practical problem than it would be otherwise. Okay, uh, second uh, arrow pointing to poor choice of research questions, publishing priority, priorities of journals. Since publishing research, preferably in the most high-status journals, is so important to a researcher's career, the publishing priorities of scientific journals have a great influence on the choice of research questions. Researchers tend to pick and design research questions based on what they believe can yield publishable results, and this might not align with which questions are most important or valuable to study. Journals generally favor novel, significant, and positive results. From one perspective, this makes a lot of sense. These kind of results seem likely to have the most valuable or impact, value or impact either for the research field or for society at large. However, if these are the only results that can be published in respective journals, it can make researchers hesitant, hesitant to choose more, quote, risky research questions, even if they would be important. A specific type of studies that can be hard to publish are replication studies, where the aim is to replicate the results of a previously conducted study, 
or replicate the methods of a previously conducted study in order to verify that or if the results are valid. One could argue that this type of research is less valuable than novel uh, studies of high quality, but there are instances where replication studies might be very important. For example, if the results are to be implemented on a very large and expensive scale, so that is especially important to verify their validity. It can also be the case that the first study done on an important question has significant flaws or there is suspicion of bias or irregularities. And I'm going to say that could clearly be compounded by this, uh, these publication biases that have been alluded to earlier. So why do the publication priorities of journals not align with what is best for value creation? That question in itself could probably be the basis for a separate post, but I believe that one reason might be that it's really hard to measure the impact of research. That's in quotes, it's hard to measure the impact of research. If the impact or societal value of research were easier to measure and demonstrate, it seems likely that at least some journals would use this to guide their publication priorities. Scientific publishing can be, I would say is, a very profitable business. There's a lot of criticism towards publishers regarding both their business models and the incentives that they create for science, as shown, for example, in this article covering the historical background of large science journals. That's a Guardian article. Okay. Um, next subsection under, you know, poor choice of research questions. Uh, by the way, I would suggest that most of these also could be seen as, most of these things could also be seen as driving poor poor quality or even results that are not so useful. Uh, um, they're perhaps incentive, well, maybe she'll get to this, I won't. 2.3, section 2.3, funding priorities of grant makers. Alternative heading, inefficient grant giving, see discussion in comments. Researchers depend on funding to carry out their work. Just as the choice of research question is influenced by what could generate publishable results, it is also directly influenced by what type of research questions attract funding. To be clear, funding priorities vary between different grant makers, and this is not necessarily a problem. Public opinion influences research funding, both through political decisions that influence governmental funding and through independent grant makers that fundraise from private donations. Detailed decisions about what to fund are generally done by academic experts, but high-level priorities about funding, for example, clean energy research, can be directly influenced by political decisions. When a specific field gets a lot of hype, this can influence the direction of funding a lot. Such trends often result in researchers tweaking their applications to include concepts hmm, that are likely to attract funding, AI, machine learning, nanotechnology, cancer, even though this might not be the best choice from a perspective of picking the most important or valuable research question. Hype of an applied field can also incentivize researchers to communicate their research in a way that seems it more relevant, that seems makes it seem more relevant to those applications than it really is. An example of this could be basic research biologists spinning their work, so it seems like it will have important biomedical outcomes. That particular example seems fairly benign uh, maybe even sort of nudging in the right direction. But I do know that there's a lot of things that are causing researchers to waste a lot of time on spinning their research, how to focus it, particularly some of these grant initiatives. I'm, I'm familiar with the ERC in Europe and the ESRC in the UK where they say this year's research theme is 
resilience. So researchers then think, okay, I don't need want to focus on the topic that's just most relevant, interesting, that I think will be most impactful. They think, okay, I have to focus on a topic that can be spun in terms of resilience, whatever that means, spend a lot of time spinning it in terms of resilience, uh, and maybe some topics that would be incredible, that I think would be incredibly productive and important, I might have to abandon them if I don't think it can be spun as resilience or likely to be spinnable as such. Um, grant funding for materials, et cetera, is, is our, and even for lab personnel, is arguably more important in the natural sciences, some natural sciences in particular, physical natural sciences relative to social sciences. But I think that increasingly also in social sciences, it is, at least in economics, it's very good to, ha to have a well-funded, connected team of researchers. Uh, so certainly grant funding is important there and also researchers are often encouraged or sometimes almost compelled to attract in some universities, I've heard a lot of complaints, to attract grant funding in order to get their tenure, promotion, etc. An interesting feature, especially considering that journals often value novelty very highly, is that grant proposals are less likely to get funding if the degree of novelty is high. And here she links an article called The Novelty Paradox and Bias for Normal Science, Evidence from Randomized Medical Grant Proposal Evaluations. And you know, my own experience is that novelty is praised in certain ways, but perhaps not what we might think of as real novelty. Of course, one would say that, right? Okay, the observed pattern does not seem to be explained by novel proposals being lesser quality or feasibility, at least, I guess, according to that article. Many funders have a stated goal of achieving impact with their funding. But as noted in the previous section, it is really hard to measure the impact of research. Almost no matter what time of type of impact it is, you try to optimize for. Also, many funders have specific fields that they focus on, e.g. cancer research, so that even if they attempt to optimize for impact, they can only do that within that specific field. One specific challenge might be that working with research funding is generally not a high-status job. This means it can be difficult to attract highly skilled people, even though doing the job well is indeed very difficult. Since there are no clear feedback loops on how well different funding agencies succeed in spending their money on impactful research, there is not much incentive for improvements. And just some commentary on, on how this might go wrong in my own impressions. Uh, so the UK has a, uh, I used to be working in the UK for many years, and they have a research, a nationalized research evaluation exercise now called the Research Effectiveness Framework. And one of the things that departments or units of departments are meant to submit is, uh, a, I think it's called impact evaluation or impact assessment or impact cases, impact case studies. Now, those impact case studies are meant to be supported by testimonials, people who claim to have used the research in meaningful ways. But uh, my impression in doing the submission of impact case studies is it becomes a gaming and to some extent box ticking and gaming exercise where you have to engage in a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of soliciting of testimonials 
uh, is sort of incentivizing that a lot more than actually doing the impactful research or uh, uh, promoting the actual impact of the research. Um, hopefully positive impact. That's another problem. It could also be tracking negative impact uh, or socially negative impact. Um, she also uh, gets at the difficulty of working with research funding being not a high status job, difficult to attract highly skilled people. Uh, and I would, the lack of feedback loops or the lack of correct feedback loops seems particularly relevant to me, particularly for the funding agencies. Uh, one, perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps um, revealing anecdote is that in the UK, some of the most, what I thought were most helpful grant funds that gave small grants to uh, social scientists to do small pieces of research early in their careers uh, was actually folded by one of the grant funders. I think there was Nuffield and British Academy and at one point they folded it or there may have been a third one and they folded it and they said no we want to emphasize large, the largest grants uh, because we uh, are being tracked on how uh, what share of our gr total funds goes towards administration of the grants versus the grants themselves. Now, one might think that administration of the grants is a wasteful expense, you know, in some sense, but then we can get into issues of whether overhead and oversight is important. But uh, the problem there, so they then said, let's just go for holding out a few very, very large grants so that our grant administering uh, expense is a small share of that. I mean, and in fact, if I just went up and handed all my grant funds to the first person on the street who, who, who had their hand out, that would in fact minimize my overhead expense or my grant making administrative expense as a share of total grants administered. But we can see why that might not be optimal. Uh, one, the oversight might be important to choosing whom to fund. And two, uh, in some context at least, there's likely to be diminishing returns to the funds given to individual researchers. Uh, of course, this does depend on the context. We could also think, and maybe particularly, I'm not sure, in, in, in big wet science, maybe there are increasing returns, if, particularly if the actual lab is growing. But my impression is that if more funding is going towards a single, let's say, theoretical researcher, those additional resources will be less and less productive. 2.4 short-term projects, the third of the uh, proffered drivers of poor choice of research questions. Many research questions are designed with the consideration that they should be possible to answer in a relatively short study, perhaps in one to three years. This can be a problem when a short study is not enough to answer an important question. For a study of healthcare intervention, for example, we might uh, do only one, we might only study and report the impact six months after the intervention when in reality it might be more relevant to know the impact after 10 years. One reason for this can be short-term funding with small grants that only cover a couple of years. Also, there is a tendency that quality is, uh, sorry, quantity is rewarded over quality, uh, maybe in some fields, uh, so that researchers are rewarded more career-wise for having published a lot of small studies than a few large grants, a uh, few large studies. However, shorter grants can in fact be, can often be connected to, can be often be combined to finance long-term projects. There are also large funders 
that work with large long-term grants that are more directed to funding excellent researchers rather than specific projects. For specific cases, this seems to have generated great results. Still, it seems unclear if this would be a scalable solution to improve research effectiveness more generally. I can agree with some of what was said, some of what in some context seems to go against what I was just saying, but one thing I can also uh, back up is there's some, certainly some bias towards short-term results or results within certain time frames of, let's say, assessment exercises, as was mentioned. Um, and uh, uh, quantity being rewarded over quality, I would say that, I mean, and now I'm getting in it at the journals rather than the grant makers, perhaps, but I would say quantity of things published in the highest tier journals is rewarded over quality conditional on being published in those highest tier journals. In other words, once you've published in the highest tier journal, uh, there's not, it doesn't seem to be much difference between a paper published in the highest tier journal that really does have an important impact, or at least not as perceived. In other words, there's not much additional returns what if you think your paper can publish in the highest tier journal to making it even better and continuing to improve this. And the nature of the publication process kind of leans towards once you've got it published, you don't improve it unless you can think of a way to, um, to turn it into yet another highly published paper. Next, lack of creativity and boldness. Next driver of poor research questions. When choosing and designing research questions, some choices are going to be riskier than others. A safe choice would be to go for research questions that lead the researcher into a field with a lot of funding, e.g. cancer research. While the study itself is something that is almost sure, I guess if the study itself is almost sure to generate publishable results. A lot of important research might be risky. So here we're getting at neglectedness, perhaps in an effective altruism sense. It might be in a novel or neglected research field where funding is more scarce or where there are fewer career opportunities. And it might be very unclear initially if the study will generate publishable results. To design such novel and high risk research questions requires creativity and boldness. Meanwhile, there are many factors in the academic system that work against having bold and creative researchers. A concept familiar to anyone in research is, quote, publish or perish. The idea that unless you keep publishing regularly in scientific journals, your research career will quickly fail. Since publications are the output of science, I think that's possibly meant facetiously, it might seem obvious that productive researchers should be rewarded. However, it becomes problematic when a researcher has a better likelihood of career success from producing multiple low-quality papers on unimportant topics than from doing high-quality work on important questions that generate fewer publications. I would say that in some fields, or at least in economics, it's not quite exactly as she's describing. Um, there are other biases. Uh, the high, it takes a lot longer to publish even in lesser quality journals, for better or for worse, in many ways for worse, as, I'll, as I discuss in, in some of the other, in that link that I gave to the unjournal. Um, but the highest quality publications are given a very, the highest uh, rated publications, in other words, these journals, top five journals, are given a huge outside uh, career benefit. Um, I disagree that publications are, 
outsized career benefit. Uh, of course, I disagree that publications themselves, as she states, are the output of science. Uh, of course, the knowledge is the output of science, and this is one of the ways that we tend to measure output and, and what we are focusing on. So it's, it's not wrong in practice, but it might be sort of, I disagree in principle, but I don't think that's what she's saying either. Uh, the other thing that I want to point out here is that, um, at least in my experience in my field, that cleverness, showing off your own, smart, your own smartness, your own cleverness, your own skills and tricks is heavily rewarded in, in publications uh, in ways that can sometimes be counterproductive. In other words, people are encouraged to pursue ever more, I don't know, complex, clever, um, uh, hard, uh, taking multiple steps, taking lots of skills, showing off one's strengths, even when those things aren't necessarily productive in terms of the research questions we're trying to answer or the ones we should be trying to answer. So I might be encouraged to pursue a topic because it allows me to flex my muscles, my skills, even when another topic which sort of would use more uh, basic techniques could actually yield more important answers. The publisher of parish pressure is driven by several factors. It links to short-term funding and insecure positions, but also to status-driven recruiting and culture. A lack of creativity and boldness is also driven by a lot of interlinked factors of the academic culture. Fear of failure and controversy, poor mental health among junior researchers, cites a Nature article there, and a hierarchical, hierarchical system. Uh, some of these things are in bold, by the way, so they're in the diagrams. Hierarchical system where it could be risky for your career to stand out in the wrong way. Uh, I would say that, at least in my field, there is, in economics, there isn't a big uh, push to go against authority. There is somewhat of a deference to authority and um, uh, to, yeah, to, to following the herd on, on certain things. A hierarchical system where it could be risky for your career to stand out in the wrong ways. The careers of research are generally set in very standardized career paths where every researcher is supposed to advance in the same manner from PhD student to professor. This is clearly not a realistic expectation, considering that there are vastly more PhD students than professors, or than slots for professors. The funding priorities of grant makers also appeal to play a role in holding back creativity and boldness, with funding agencies becoming more risk averse. Uh, she cites another article here, uh, Embo reports, it's not just about money, uh, okay, by Philip Hunter. 2.6, the final uh, reason she highlights for poor choice of research questions. Poor design of research questions in applied research is often linked to little or no contact with the intended end user of the results. For example, a researcher who develops a new medical treatment might not have had much contact with the patients to understand if it would really improve their life quality. A researcher on economic policy might not have understood the considerations of the political decision maker that would implement the new policy, and a materials researcher may have neglected important priorities in the industry that would use a new material. Of course, here she's citing more applied research. I expect there to be a critique, a pretty standard critique or response that much research is basic research, and perhaps that's the most important research. Uh, basic research being research that helps, quote, advance the field, uh, develop key principles, basically research that will probably be consumed by other researchers 
in, in advancing the other research and research entering into at least the more high-level textbooks. One reason for this disconnect could be the lack of entrepreneurial skills. Lack of entrepreneurial skills, bold, in research groups. It is uncommon to reach out to the end users and make new connections outside of academia. Researchers often get their understanding of the field through scientific conferences and through what is published in journals, neglecting informal non-academic sources of information. It might also be difficult to communicate with non-experts or with experts of other fields if they are used to speaking in very specialized terminology. It seems that entrepreneurial skills are not encouraged by, academic, by the academic culture and system. The fact that career paths are standardized and hierarchies are often very strong could deter entrepreneurial people from an academic career. Many grant makers do request end-user participation in applied research projects, but in practice, this is often established in a shallow way just to tick the box in the grant application. Uh, in my experience, I would suggest that maybe some types of entrepreneurship, academic entrepreneurship in the sense of applying for grants, expanding centers, uh, programs to attract students, uh, uh, et cetera, is encouraged. But is that, is the sort of uh, entrepreneurship, in other words, knowing the actual business or, or applied culture encouraged uh, across disciplines? Perhaps not. The first identified problem was poor choice of research questions. And the second identified problem is poor quality and reproducibility. Of course, I would suggest these are naturally connected to one another. If the research is done well, it should be reproducible. <coughs> poor quality and reproducibility. If the research question is, quote, good in the sense that answering it would provide value of some kind for society, the value of the output still depends on the quality of the research. So even if the research question is good, the value depends on the quality of the research. The Center for Open Science does a lot of work in this area, um, and many meta-science publications have been done on this topic. Have been, in other words, Center for Open Science is looking into the practices that are limiting the credibility of science and, and the lack of replicability and providing quite a lot of tools. The reproducibility crisis or replication crisis refers to the realization that many scientific studies are difficult or impossible to replicate or reproduce. This means that the value of published research results is questionable. being unable to be reproduced could result from them not reporting exactly what they did and thus making it unclear what exactly one would want to be able to replicate, reproduce in order to verify, in order to get another measure of the reliability of the results, or it could be just they did something incorrectly, they did something that, um, well, there, there could be a variety of reasons. Publication bias could also a certain type of publication bias could also lead to a lack of reproducibility if there was sort of selective cherry picking of that publication bias led to selective cherry picking of those studies that by some chance happened to yield a significant or interesting or clean result. Figure three maps underlying drivers of poor research quality and reproducibility. The direct causes that have been identified are poor peer review, 
as well as the poor methodological and reporting practices themselves. These practices are driven by many root causes, primarily linked to academic culture. And this is another problem tree. This one ending up in ending up with uh, poor quality slash reproducibility. And we see publishing, poor peer review in particular, uh, and publishing priorities of journals, I might add, uh, yeah, poor checking of, of data and code by journals. Um, uh, so that's leading to poor peer review, leading to poor quality. Uh, we also have poor methodological and reporting practices leading to poor quality. So those are the two things leading directly to poor quality, but then we see funding, culture, and publishing issues driving both of those uh, two things. Um, under culture, they talk about fear of being scooped or scooping, so I guess trying to get things published quickly rather than carefully, uh, poor management of research teams, lack of recognition for certain tasks, uh, hierarchies, insularity of research groups. I know that there's an organization, I'm forgetting what it's called, but reporting on academic bullying, particularly when a senior person in the group typically would pressure a younger person in the group to just get results at the expense of doing things properly. Uh, there's there's uh, certain horror stories coming out, coming out um, in that in that uh, of that sort. Um, and then, of course, from the point of view of the senior person, you know, if they could do that and have plausible deniability, then that could be a very uh, obviously um, unethical, but perhaps successful ticket to research success in that when the underlings are willing to sort of paint the mice a little bit or run lots of experiments and only report some of them, you then get these fantastic, surprising, perhaps not replicable or reliable results. Um, and if something goes wrong, you could, you could blame the underlings for that. Um, I'm not recommending it. Okay. Poor peer review. Peer review is this process by which experts in the field experts in the field review scientific publications before they are published. In theory, the system is supposed to guarantee quality. If there are flaws in the study design, the methodology, or in the reporting of results, the reviewers should see this and either make the author um, improve their work or reject the paper completely. I would argue that that rating the quality of the work and then suggesting improvements might be more appropriate rather than the zero one accept reject measure. I, I make that case in, in the other uh, in the other paper. Although you might argue that there there could be a, a minimum bar that even any paper should meet to sort of even be recognized and distributed uh, in repositories. In practice, though, this doesn't work very well. And there's a link here to an article on Vox.com uh, from 2015. Let's stop pretending peer review works. Uh, so in practice, she says, this doesn't work very well. And even top scientific journals have run or published seriously flawed papers. One reason for this is that even though reviewing is viewed as being important for academic career progression, 
it reviewing is done on a volunteer basis without compensation to the reviewer. Reviews are usually anonymous, so there is no accountability and no real incentive to do peer review well. This leads to reviews being done either hastily or delegated to more junior researchers that might not have the experience to do it well. Uh, I would say that the incentives, if one is just thinking about oneself to do reviews, would be uh, currying, I mean, being in good stead with editors uh, and associate editors of journals. You think that maybe if you do a bunch of reviews for them, they will, and, and if you sound smart, they'll think more of you. At least that's how it would be supposed to work. Um, people also, I mean, as a side quote benefit, you get you you sh feel like you should be reading the papers, although doing a review, at least in my field, takes a lot of time and, and probably more going into details that you might not want to go into if you're just reading it for your own sake. It probably takes a full day of work to, to review a paper in, in, in my experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and then what incentives do you have when writing the review? Well, there's the, of course, cynical incentive that you, if this person's a competitor, you want to prevent them from getting credit for some idea that might be your own. So that's that's a very horrible way to think, but that does get, that, that or for taking credit for being the first to do this. That That is what gets into academics' heads, I think, and I hear that point of view a bit. Um, uh, if it's someone, you maybe if, if you support their ideas and you, you know them personally, you might want to help them. Of course, that's also not the way it should work. Uh, if they seem to be doing things that support your uh, agenda or the perspective you're trying to bring to the literature or issue, that might make you more positive towards them. But why should I want to write a detailed review? Probably the motivation is impressing the editors if I look for just, just venial uh, motivations. Um, but then, you know, picking up stuff like, oh, th these people found, th I see these, this data doesn't match this other data that they, s that they showed, or uh, th these people didn't share their code, I want them to share their code and I want to go through their code painstakingly. There's not much incentive, or let's say there's not much reward given to doing that. Um, um, and in some cases, when the editor or the associate editor or whatever sort of comes it to you and says, makes it kind of clear that they really do want to publish this paper coming from someone prominent, if you then stick your neck out and say, well, it has this flaw and this flaw and this flaw, you might be earning yourself uh, negative points with the editor, at least. I think that's something that, that crosses people's minds. Oh, yeah, another thing people do is, uh, oof, I, I feel so dirty talking about these things, but another thing people do and people do um, complain about, but they, they do is, is if they're reviewing a paper positively, they sort of hint that they were the reviewer by saying, hey, cite my paper uh, and mentioning themselves a bit. And that can then be lead to sort of a dynamic of, of this person feels like they might owe you a favor. Um, again, it, it, feels, it feels a bit sinister, but I guess this is how life works. Uh, and we try to come up with ways for getting around these these problems. High scientific quality should be among the top publishing priorities of journals, but it seems as if in practice that is not the case. 
if large, profitable, and well-respected journals had scientific quality as a top priority, they should be able to achieve it. I think, again, at least in my field, I would separate the – as far as I know, the profit motive of journals is a problem, but it feels somewhat separate from the priorities of the people actually choosing who get what's published in the journals. And, I mean, there's, there's problems for both, but I don't feel the interaction between the two, but it may, in fact, differ in, in the, the natural sciences. If large, profitable, and well-respected journals had scientific qualities a top priority, they should be able to achieve it. In reality, it appears that top science journals might even be attracting low-quality science, partly because they prioritize publishing spectacular results. There's a lot of alliteration there. So they cite a Vox article, again, from 2016. Is that when the replication crisis first started to become big? Uh, a paper, a neurogenetics researcher uh, found that erroneous papers were more likely to appear in the papers that were debunked were more likely to appear in more prestigious journals. I agree with this idea that there's a bias towards novelty, uh, which strikes academia, which strikes academic editors. Maybe there's some pressure from the journals themselves towards the academic editors to try to publish more things that we can make a big splash about. Obviously, there's a big incentive or there's a big uh, pressure for people in the popular media to sensationally report and spin scientific findings to make them more uh, attractive and interesting. That's something we struggle with a lot if we're being reported on, or academics struggle a lot if their work's being reported on, saying, no, that's not what I was saying. Um, the journalist says, well, can you, can you make it a little bit more uh, juicy? C can we say this? Can we say that? But that's not what we're talking about here. But there might still be some pressure uh, at the level of the academic journals. As a counterpoint to this, uh, there's a paper by Max Kazi, who's an economist um, and possibly a co-author, that he makes the claim that everything else equal, you would want to publish a more surprising result over a less surprising result, and that's kind of good for the scientific consensus. So there is a case for that, but that also doesn't tell us whether we've gone too far in that direction. Um, and obviously, well, not obviously. His model doesn't take into account these, as far as I know, these other biases towards showing something spectacular to, let's say, make make your journal or your school or your own research more, let's say, marketable in some some sense that doesn't align with, uh, let's say, good scientific, uh, advance of scientific knowledge. Since getting published in a top journal can be extremely valuable to a researcher's career, there's a great incentive to cut corners or even cheat to achieve such spectacular results. Second, poor methodological and reporting practices. So this, this is the second thing that she's saying leads to poor reproducibility or, or poor quality research. Apart from flaws in peer review, the main driver for poor research quality and reproducibility is poor methodological and reporting practices. Poor methodology refers to when the study or data analysis is poorly done. Of course, there are many field-specific examples of poor methodology, but there are also questionable research practices that occur across many fields. QRP, questionable research practices, something that, that one hears a lot about in the open science, robust science, uh, movement. Uh, so you hear about things like P, 
fee hacking being a general, a general term. Uh, so, so the the article linked here is uh, is um, I don't see who actually wrote it. It's Replicability Index. Uh, they cite a 2012 article by John Lowenstein and Prelex, so selective reporting of dependent variables, choosing which dependent variables to report. In other words, finding the results that are more exciting and salacious or, or statistically significant. Another QRP is deciding whether to collect more data after looking to see whether the results will be significant. Um, and this is a, a sequential or adaptive process of data collection, which actually can be done right, but uh, doing it without making the proper adjustments uh, can lead to over-reporting or reporting, systematically reporting results that are overstated. Failing to disclose experimental conditions, they say. Um, okay. I guess they're looking at multiple hypothesis testing without corrections for those. That's a, a big issue. It's, there's some approaches to dealing with it. It's not as transparent as it might easy as, as it might seem to know exactly the best way of dealing with that. Uh, in a paper re selectively reporting the studies that worked, in a paper routing off p-values just above, sorry for laughing at myself, 0.054, and claiming that it's below 0.05. Uh, Reporting an unexpected finding as having been predicted from the start. Claiming results are unaffected by demographic variables when one is actually unsure. Falsifying data. I mean, you could come up with a lot of other ones. I, I find some other ones that, which I guess are more like just sometimes incorrect statistical practices, but perhaps people are less likely to want to correct those when they make their findings seem more exciting, such as saying this one result in this one group was statistically significant and this group was not significant, so it was significant for men and not for women, and then from that concluding, quote, we find a gender difference. That's not appropriate because, it, just to give an example, it could be the, the difference for men was just barely significant and the difference for women was just barely insignificant, which doesn't make, uh, cutting some corners here, doesn't make the difference significant. Um, of course, I would also, well, let, let me not get too much into that particular weed. One prominent example is p-hacking, or also known as data dredging, which describes when exploratory or hypothesis-generating research is not kept apart from confirmatory or hypothesis-testing research. This means that the same data set that gave rise to a specific hypothesis is also used to confirm it. This is not how I uh, heard of p-hacking. In other words, what she's saying there would be maybe hypothesizing after the research is known. Uh, but I, and I, it's not, you know, it's not a, a valid practice and it might be referred to as p-hacking, but what I've heard to refer to as p-hacking uh, are focuses on what's called researchers of degree, researcher degrees of freedom, uh, where the researcher may, will not pre-specify in advance before they've seen the data, the methods that they're gonna use, which let's say regression they're gonna run, which variables they're gonna in include, what specification they're gonna use, what statistical tests they're gonna use. They have all these things they can play with. Uh, so this would be one type of p-hacking, perhaps the most prominent one and they choose which methodology to use 
they try them all out until they find one that reports the most dramatic or statistically significant results. So that's the classic case of p-hacking that, um, that I've heard, uh, but also, also perhaps referring to degrees of freedom with respect to doing tests involving many outcome variables, reporting only the ones that are the most interesting without, without uh, correcting for the multiple hypothesis tests. But I, I do agree that, that confirmatory or there is in, in many settings a reason why, a reason f that you should set aside a certain amount of data uh, in certainly in modeling or predictive modeling this is done. You set aside a certain amount of data to first to build your model and then a different part of the data to test your model. Um, some say that should be done through replication, but it, this really depends on the, the context. You know, should it be done by someone else? Poor reporting overlaps with poor methodology, but can also be a separate issue where the actual methodology is scientifically sound. If, for example, details of experiment design, raw data, or code for data analysis is not shared publicly, it is very difficult for someone else to independently repeat a study to confirm the results. In theory, such data could be obtained from the corresponding author, author but in practice, records are often so poor that, and this is a, a link, more than 70% of researchers have tried and failed to reproduce another scientist's experiment, and more than half have failed to reproduce their own experiments. And here she cites a paper published in Nature, obviously one of the most prominent journals in all of science, 1500 by Monica Baker, Monia Baker, 1500 scientists lift the lid on reproducibility. Uh, I guess from a s nature survey of a brief online questionnaire of reproducibility in research. A few things I want to mention here. One is that there's a lot of data that would, it, were it shared in a uh, clear, easy way, data and code shared in a clear and easy way uh, that could be indexed and accessible, where variables and things were defined, or the, you know, the, the columns of the data were defined according to particular standards, that would enable a great deal of meta-analysis and uh, pooled analysis uh, getting that other researchers could do, getting a lot of results without having to invest in costly rerunning experiments and gathering new data. Um, I know, you know from working on projects involving meta-analysis or involving trying to promote data sharing that uh, researchers do not all are not all willing to share data. The major thing is is not a refusal to share data, but just a slow response because they have these other pressures to publish, and this sharing data is not ever a priority. They may also have poor data practices in the sense that they don't catalog this and keep track of their data. They don't have clean code. They don't have code books on their data, so it's hard for them to share. Um, I, it could be some are reluctant to share because they're worried about someone finding a bug. That's also possible. Uh, I, I believe that I've read and, and brought some things together for, for, for some applications suggesting that actually in many cases there is a significant part when people try to do meta-analyses there are significant parts of the data that they do never reach uh, because the authors, if they don't refuse to share, they just drag their heels or they make the data available in an unclear way and then don't help explain it. Um, another issue that's sometimes raised is that asking 
is that data should be just made available and not available by request of author uh, because of issues with um, hierarchies and people being afraid to ask authors, prominent authors, for their data and worried that they'll be seen as a troublemaker, people who are less senior, for instance, than that uh, author and might need to ask, rely on that author to, to as an editor or to approve, to endorse them for grants and things like that. Methodological and reporting practices depend on academic culture. Methodology and routines for documentation and for documentation and reporting are often taught informally within research groups. Yeah. Informal training combined with insularity of research groups where methodological practices are not shared and discussed between groups leads to a lack of transparency. And I'd also suggest lack of norms and practices that make it easy to communicate and, and uh, read someone else's uh, experiment report and data and, and code and other groups. Strong hierarchies also contribute to lack of scrutiny as it can be hard for junior researchers to challenge the judgment of their supervisors. Um, I would add to that that typically the most uh, senior or the oldest researchers are the least savvy about open science, about data, about clean replicable or clean, co clean readable code. Um, and they sort of sometimes have a tendency to laugh those off things and say no one really cares about that. Uh, and then the junior researchers are the ones who do care about it, who do know about it, but they feel that they can't stick their own necks out. There's also the issue of quantity over quality. The pressure to publish, publish or perish, can push researchers to submit flawed studies for publication, as there is a widespread perception that quantity over is rewarded over quality in a researcher's career. Uh, I've already commented how that's not doesn't seem particularly to be the problem in economics, uh, but there are, of course, other problems. There are a number of declarations, manifestos, and groups. Um, and she links some of them here. Esfedora, nature.com, science in transition. A number of declarations, manifestos, and groups claiming that the metrics we are currently using, which focus on quality, uh, quantity, are flawed with potentially catastrophic consequences. Meanwhile, a study made on Swedish researchers states that such criticism lacks empirical support. A full evaluation of this is outside the scope of this post. However, it might be worth reflecting on Goodhart's law. Goodhart's law, open quote, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. In other words, evaluating quality of scientists based on the amount of their publications would only lead to scientists who produce a lot of publications. In other words, they're saying the thing you become measure, that you measure becomes the thing that is targeted. And in order to produce studies faster, researchers would neglect the boring things, uh, documentation, organization of research artifacts, and might also end up with flawed methodology. Okay, the fourth uh, major problem that she highlights is results are not used in the real world. Even when research produces valuable results, their actual impact will often depend on their implementation outside of academia. In some cases, for example, basic research, this might be less relevant as the end users are also in academia. 
I did think that that would be a critique. Thus, impact will be generated through the accumulated work of other researchers that builds further on these results. However, for most applied research, the results have essentially no impact, focusing on applied research, have essentially no impact unless they are used in the real world, quote, outside academia. Use of results looks very different for different fields and involves different types of end users. It could be a change in laws or policy that is implemented by politicians and public servants, or the use of, new of a new material that is used to produce better consumer electronics by a private company, or the implementation of better infection prevention methods in hospitals by healthcare staff. Neither of these are likely to happen as a direct result of a researcher publishing a paper in a scientific journal, unless they also involve other forms of communication and collaboration. Figure four maps underlying reasons why research results are not put to use. The direct causes that have been identified are intellectual property issues and lack of connection with the end user. The underlying causes seem to mostly depend on problems within the academic culture. The diagram figure four is depicted below in proven research problem three again. Res the outcome being results are not used in the real world. As she just said, intellectual property issues and lack of connection with end users are the two things she sees as proximally driving this. Uh, here, she doesn't have publishing, the gray er the region known as publishing playing a role uh, in this, at least not an important one, in the lack of the results being used by the end user. Um, I would suggest that, that maybe there are ways in which it plays a role. Uh, for instance, the accessibility of publications in two ways. One, the actual, uh, I mean, people in industry may not have access to um, locked up publications that are not open access, but also the publishers and, and the, the ways that these things are built, it's researchers are not encouraged to write in a way that, or to write in, in, in a way uh, or produce various formats of the same paper or document, making it applicable to end users. So I think that there's publishing may even play a role uh, there. Um, she also has for funding, short-term funding, insecure positions leading to publish or perish. That leading to intellectual property issues. Interesting, I'm wondering about that change. They're also leading to lack of connection with end users. And then most of the things seem to be falling into the culture uh, sphere, the culture box. Um, driving lack of entrepreneurial skills and intellectual property issues. I, I think that some of this probably would need to be Maybe this this was a little bit more neglected than the others. Might need a little bit more um, talking about the chains of causality, causality, but let's read on. Okay, intellectual property issues. Uh, the first of the two drivers of this problem, according to this diagram. For research that results in intellectual property, IP, typically an invention that can be protect protected by a patent, the handling of the IP rights is extremely important for how likely the results are to be used. 
the ownership of the IP generated by research works in different ways in different locations. The ownership, I think she means, is conferred in different ways in different locations. In Sweden and Italy, for example, the researcher has full personal ownership of any IP their research generates through the so-called professor's privilege. In other locations, for example, in the US and in the United Kingdom, IP rights or results of publicly funded research are owned by the institution where the researcher works, institutional ownership. There also exist more complicated variations where IP ownership is split between the researcher and the institution. Protecting IP means that nobody else can use the invention without permission, and it is a common perception that a patent is most of all a barrier to implementation. The practice of patenting discoveries, especially those that come as a result of publicly or philanthropically funded research, has been heavily criticized for creating barriers to innovation and collaboration, being a bureaucratic and administrative burden for universities, and for creating distorted, incent distorted incentives for researchers. For example, researchers may be deterred from investigating the potential of a compound that is patented by someone else as they know they will be dependent on the patent holder for permission to use any new results. I wonder what she means by use any new results. Um, okay, deterred from investigating the potential for its use in industry or, or healthcare, I suppose. And the patent holder might keep them from pursuing that without taking a big bite of the profits or the credit. I mean, I guess here we're talking about profits. On the other hand, IP protection can be crucial to attract, invest, to attract investments to take an invention all the way to practical use. Say, for an example, that a research group has identified a compound that could be a very promising new invention, new medication. If it is generally only if the IP is protected that investments will be made to develop this promising compound into a drug. The process of developing and commercializing a new product is expensive and risky, and patent ownership is what makes it possible to recoup these investments if the project is successful. This means that if a group does not patent the compound or otherwise protect the intellectual property, it will never be developed into a drug. A uh, few asides here. Um, I don't think patents are as important in social science research, partly because the ideas we that we and insights we generate, maybe they're less useful in actually developing innovations, maybe it's less clear how they lead to innovations, and maybe it's just harder to patent as our patent system is not set up for patenting certain types of things, for giving intellectual property for certain types of insights that businesses could use. And I'm not saying it should be. Um, I'm generally very critical of the patent system, fa fairly critical of the patent system, uh, and I would question the, I mean, it's, she's not saying this per se, but I don't think patents are the only way to reward innovation, innovative science, innovative, um, uh, um, innovative research and development coming from science. I think there are other ways of rewarding it, such as well offering, let's say, prizes to the person who develops the cure for a disease, uh, finding ways of measuring the value generated by these innovations, and then uh, 
having a tax uh, through, through general funds uh, go back to, the, to, to compensate the original innovator, uh, which may get rid of some of the distortions involved in, in the current monopoly rights and things granted by the IP protection of the current patent system, but may generate other problems. Anyways, off topic here, let's get back to the videotape. One way that IP issues can prevent results from being used is therefore simply sloppiness. When nobody realized there was IP that should be protected or nobody bothered to do it. A patent can only be granted for a novel and unknown invention. If the IP has ever been described in public, it cannot be protected. And the possibilities to get investments into commercial development then become very slim, even for promising inventions. That's interesting. I would have thought maybe it would be the other way, that if there's no patent, then everyone will, then a lot of companies will want to use it or claim it. Um, but I suppose in some situations, more investment needs to be put in. And if somehow the possibility of the patent has been uh, ruled out, no one's going to be willing to put it that next bit of investment into turning this into a real practical thing, perhaps. Protection of intellectual property can thereby be in direct conflict with the focus on rapid publication of results to publish or perish culture. On the other hand, filing and maintaining patents is no guarantee for implementation. A lot depends on the patent owner, and it's unclear what policies generate the best results. When the individual researcher holds the patent personally, a lot depends on that researcher's skills and motivation. If they don't have the interest or the ability to commercialize the invention, it will generally never happen. The academic culture is not encouraging entrepreneurship, and many research groups lack members with entrepreneurial skills. When patents are instead owned and managed by the university through some kind of venture or holding company, a little less depends on the individual researcher. However, this leads to other issues. The staff uh, managing IP exploitation do not have a personal stake in the potential startup, which also decreases their incentives to do a great job. Also, since they manage a portfolio of patents, different patents from the same university compete with each other for resources and priorities. Interesting to hear that perspective. I guess that I generally, uh, first of all, not something I'm terribly aware of, uh, I'm familiar with, and also I generally would have tended to associate uh, the patent system or, or, or the, the very uh, obsessive protection of intellectual property to be something that would deter the use of research in innovation. Uh, but I, I, I see there's, there's a case to be made in the, in the opposite direction here. Um, also, I don't think it's my impression that academics tend to be not entrepreneurial, but I, I accept that um, yeah, your mileage may vary as they say. Second reason why results are not used in the real world, or second uh, proximal factor, lack of connection with end user. It seems common that a researcher has the view that their job is done by producing and publishing results in scientific journals, which is logical since that is how a research career is measured and rewarded. For results to be used in the real world, however, publishing is rarely enough. Section 2.6, uh, that is the lack of connection with the end user in the design of the research question, covers the lack of connection with end users in the design of research questions. The most serious 
consequence of this is when the research question itself is fundamentally irrelevant for the stakeholders. When there is no direct contact between researcher and end user, the researcher also does not any get any clear feedback on why the results remain unused, which makes it difficult to improve. Contact with the end user is crucial also after the results have been obtained. Working with implementation is often neglected as it is time-consuming, difficult, and often not rewarded by the academic system. Implementation work can look very different between fields. In political science or economics, I think she means, the stakeholders could be politicians or staff at government bodies, while in biotech or physics, it might be private companies. Either way, close collaboration between researcher and end user is often a prerequisite for proper implementation of results. I think in some context, it may also be that the researcher would want to work with a, let's say, private sector end user, but the structure of the academic contract uh, makes it difficult for them to do so uh, without the university sort of seizing their gains. Um, at least I know of some situations where people are not willing to do things like that uh, in my own experience because they just really don't trust the administration of the university they're working with. Final section, conclusions. The academic research system is very complex and there are many different issues that cause waste of resources within it. Though research already produces a lot of value of different kinds, e.g. improved medical treatments, more efficient food production, sustainable energy technologies, or improved understanding of the universe, there also seems to be a lot of room for improvement. An issue that came up in the process of creating this piece, but that was not included in the mapping, is a general scarcity of flexible research funding. Increased and less restricted funding might be a possible solution to some of the problems mentioned here. Still, it's unclear if it would be more effective to inc increase funding to address other problems in the system. Uh, I think flexibility is, is good when we're considering the, f the funding, um, at least relative to the sort of uh, themes that large international grant funders seem to come up with, which don't tend to be particularly productive at least not in my experience in the social sciences. However, I don't necessarily see how more research would help the incentives here, sorry, how more funding would help the incentives here. Um, if people were to gain more funding to do their research, uh, I would think that they still might use that funding to try to target the, the same uh, the same metrics we talked about before, subject to the to the biases and limitations of of, of, of what uh, journal editors are willing to publish I in order to advance their own careers. Uh, that said, maybe more funding overall could make careers more secure. And if we think that people don't just simply try to always achieve more and more money, prestige, and, and job stability, then maybe at a certain point they would be able to come back to the focus on the science that they really cared about and, and the things that maybe initially 
intrinsically motivated them, but, but that seems like a much bigger and broader discussion. As mentioned in the introduction, the matrix right at manageable, I opted not to include issues that seem to just slow progress towards results without jeopardizing their value. Such issues would include requirements for researchers to spend time on other things than research, and I think a discussion on the subject of what researchers should and should not spend time on would fit better in a separate paper. Proposed solutions and reform initiatives are outside the scope of this place, but it's worth mentioning that a lot of work is being done by different organizations. Um, and here she links a list of meta-science research centers uh, on Wiki. And I see uh, metrics at Stanford, Center for Open Science, very famous, directed Brian Nosek, Brazilian Meta-Science Research Group, Center for Research Integrity, uh, and about five or, or 10 others. Um, there are pl plans for follow-up posts by the contributors to this one that focus more on the solution side. Uh, I'll be personally trying to make my document into a post. I slash we would love to get input on this mapping, particularly if you think that one, there are significant issues which jeopardize the value of research results which are not included in this post. Two, any of the problems described here is overstated. Three, some challenges in the research system might be more or less valuable to target from an EA perspective. Looking forward to your feedback in the comments. Some quick overall thoughts on this post. Um, I think it does get it some or all of the major problems, um, poor choice of research questions, poor quality and reproducibility, results not used in the real world, maybe thinking about whether the research is pursued past the point of publication, I would, I would perhaps characterize that. Um, I didn't, I guess uh, I agree with also some of the problems she cited as, as lying behind or the, the, the um, forces, the channels, the mechanisms lying behind some of these basic problems in publishing, funding, and culture. I think that's right. Um, I think that, um, and even some of the things like lack of good review articles, or maybe I would say lack of review articles that are organized in a coherent way and accessible and uh, targeted to be very useful to the to the research practitioner. Um, I would emphasize some other things, but some of that may be because I'm in a different field and I'm not familiar with uh, the problems faced by uh, Cecilia's uh, work in the natural sciences. Uh, I guess I, you, you saw that I disagreed with some of the points she made, or at least I point made counter arguments and counter cases. And I think the post would be strengthened by um, by making more clear some of the connect what the story is behind some of these arrows, the directional arrows. weren't always clear to me why the arrows went in particular directions, what the arguments for these was, and what the evidence for these were. Um, and um, the other thing I thought maybe was missing in this post, but I don't think it was necessarily targeted at this, but then maybe should it be targeted at this, or should we require that post, or we're not requiring, but should, you know, thinking about this as a post on the Effective Altruism Forum, um, it didn't, wasn't completely clear to me, I mean, she did at the beginning talk about the magnitude of this research, but I think 
perhaps more could have been done to treat this from an effective altruism point of view, uh, thinking more particularly about are the research questions uh, useful, are the research questions asked the ones that are most useful for global priorities, for relieving suffering, for uh, human and sentient welfare, for preserving the long-term future and, and, and reducing existential threats, um, uh, and what may make these questions departing from that, but, and also the other, the other legs, the, the quality and reproducibility, to what extent and in what ways is that particularly important to the effective altruism community, and to some extent, yeah, results being used in the real world. Maybe we don't care so much about all of the results being used in the real world. For instance, algorithms that you know, help companies price more shrewdly to their consumers in ways that don't necessarily increase total surplus, or new products that, 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 yield, a that yield welfare, but ma mainly things that will benefit the very rich and, and not be distributed. I'm just coming up with some examples here. Um, or even some products and developments that, that may lead to harmful um, uh, spillover indirect effects. Um, so what about the, what ways can we make research be more used uh, for things that benefit humanity and, and the long-term future and uh, the welfare of, of sentient beings? Um, and perhaps what ways can we encourage research that is useful in particular for researchers and global priorities and aligned with effective altruism? What way can we encourage more academic research uh, both in the areas we care about, in you thinking about the concerns and metrics we care about and, and producing outputs that we can use and interact with? And uh, some of that I, I will touch on in, in my post about the reinventing the journals. Um, I think I've, there's a few other people who have posted or who are developing posts and, and writings in this area, including Lynch, Zhang, and um, uh, Ido, I, I believe. And um, I'm also thinking about ways to encourage this working with groups like the Effective Thesis Project, ways that effective altruism organizations can, let's say, encourage, incentivize, host researchers, train students, uh, bring together the resources or provide, make resources available, um, do perhaps small amounts of work in organizing things in ways that will tip the balance in favor of more effective uh, research and, and, and more effective uses of the research. Okay, let's go to the comments, see what comments were made about this particular paper, uh, sorry, forum post. So there were 30 comments on this forum post. Um, the first one, or is this sorted by most recent, I believe? Uh, yeah, the most recent is from Lynch, uh, and that's almost a whole post. Um, so I'm going to get to that, but not just yet. So I'm gonna sort this by top scoring comments. Um, so James Smith, uh, his comment is fairly short. Thanks a lot for writing this post. 
I'm interested in these dentists and was just thinking the other day that a write-up of this sort would be valuable. A relevant and fairly detailed write-up, not mine, of this problem area and how meta-research might help is available here. Uh, Let'sfund.org, Better Science. I didn't see it cited, but may have missed it. I think they did mention it. Um, and that's a link to fund uh, the research career of Professor Chris Chambers at Cardiff University, who's active in the Registered Reports Project. In terms of the content of the post, a couple of things that I might push back on a little. Peer review. I'm not sure that poor peer review of papers is a major cause of ineffective value production, though I agree that it is a minor contributor. By the time a project is written up as a paper, it will be invariably be published, published somewhere in the literature in roughly the format that it was first submitted. If top journals had better peer review, if top journals had better peer review but other journals did not, the research would likely be published elsewhere anyways. Basically, it strikes me as too late in the process to be that important. Poor methodology, which I would attribute largely to lack of training and incentives to rush research, seems more important. Lack of peer review at an appropriate time in the research process, i.e. before the research is done to get feedback on methods, also seems more important than the quality of peer review of the final paper, which is what I understood the section on peer review to be describing. I would push back on that pushback, so we're getting a lot of pushing here, but maybe very field-specific. Uh, in economics and the social science and that I'm familiar with, I think that a lot does change in the long process of going through the potential journals and being rejected or revised and resubmitted, uh, or to use the annoying term, reject and resubmitted. Uh, and a lot of the methods of analyzing the data uh, which you've collected or, or that's publicly available in some contexts, a lot of those methods do change in response or could change in response to peer review also things having to do with transparency and data sharing. But I also agree that, um, that feedback at earlier stages would be really, really helpful. Um, and I like the idea of having sort of living documents up there, open research projects people are working on in real time and getting feedback on and validation for in real time. Pipe dream or possibility? Well, that's for another discussion. Number two, intellectual property. This seems mostly relevant to a smallish subset of research that is directly involved in making products. Even in those places, cases, it isn't clear that IP is a big barrier. In fact, it could be argued that not patenting is better for development of products in some cases because it allows multiple commercialization attempts in parallel with slightly different aims. Yeah, suggesting this. For an example of this, in the context of drug development, see here, www.thesgc Org. The basic idea is that if, e.g., a molecule is not patented when it is initially described, you can still patent the use of that molecule for a particular indication. So the molecule can still be commercialized for that indication, while another organization may pursue the same molecule with another indication. This potentially increases, rather than decreases, the potential for commercialization of the molecule. I'd be interested in learning what projects you have planned and discussing some solutions to the problems you have mapped. I'm quite involved in the reproducible research community in the UK, particularly in Oxford, and there's a link there to his profile, so perhaps could be helpful. And uh, 
Cecilia responded with some agreement um, and with some discussion of whether IP barriers may be a barrier in some contexts and in, not in others. Uh, and Ada Arad also, Ada Arad also responded, uh, says peer review, better peer review would be in, in help raise standards for the field as a whole rather than the direct papers that didn't pass peer review. I wonder how that would work. Uh, James Smith responds with some agreement. My also means a minor point about his skepticism of the paper claim of, of the relationship between impact factor and, and retraction, uh, worried about the using the control and regression for number of views as an article as a statistical confounder. Um, okay, so that's, that's that comment. All American Breakfast uh, writes, 13 upvotes, my experience talking with scientists and reading scientists in the regenerative medicine field has shifted my opinion against this critique somewhat. Published papers are not the fundamental unit of science. Most labs are two years ahead of whatever they've published. There's a lot of knowledge within the team that is not in the papers that they put out. Developing a field is a process of investment, not in creating papers, but in creating skilled workers using a new array of developing technologies and techniques. This paper, the paper is a way of stimulating conversation and a loose measure of that productivity. But just because the papers aren't good enough doesn't mean there's no useful learning going on or that science is progressing in a wasteful manner. It's just less legible to the public. I am sympathetic to this, but I'm wondering in what way do we know that the research is being then, the, the real research, the real good stuff that he's talking about, that that really is getting out there and, and being used. Um, when, at least you know, in my field experience, it is the papers in fancy high-ranking publications that are what people are targeted and incentivized for. For example, I read and discussed with the authors a paper on bioprinting experiment, on a bioprinting experiment. They produced a one centimeter cube of human tissue via extrusion bioprinting. The materials and methods aren't rigorously controllable enough for reproducibility. They use decellularized pig's hearts from the local butcher. What it's been eating, what were its genetics, how was it raised? and an animal, an involved manual process to produce and extrude the materials. Several scientists in the field have cautioned me against assuming that the figures and published data are reproducible. Yet does that mean the field is, is worthless? Not at all. New bioprinting methods continue to be developed. The limits of, the achievement, of achievement continue to expand. Humanity is developing a cadre of bioengineers who know how to work with this stuff and sometimes go on to found companies with their refined techniques. It's the ability to create skilled workers in new manufacturing and measurement techniques, skilled thinkers in some line of theory that is an important product of science. Reproducibility is important, but that's what you get after a lot of preliminary work to figure out how to work with the materials and equipment and ideas. So here he's basically completely lost me. If these processes aren't reproducible, they haven't written down a recipe for what works, how do they hope to use these in the future. Uh, I don't quite get that line of argument, but there might be something that he meant to say there that he didn't 
say in a way that I, so there's some follow up and back and forth along the lines of the, some of the things I mentioned here. Uh, and, um, uh, and uh, Michael Aird uh, cites a section of Alan Defoe's post on AI governance. Uh, so All American Breakfast gets back to it and says, and that talks about what the trade-offs would be. And he or she replies in some length. Uh, and I'm going to just highlight a few of the things in the response by breakfast. No, the purpose of publishing is not mainly to communicate to the public. After all, very few members of the public read scientific literature. The truth-seeking or engineering achievement the lab is aiming for is one thing. The experiments they run to get closer are another, and the description of these experiments are a third thing. That third thing is what you get from the paper. I find it useful at this stage in my career because it helps me find labs doing work that's of interest to me. Grant makers and universities find them useful to decide who to give money or who to hire. Publications show your work in a way that a letter of reference or a line on a resume just can't. But I, I guess I'm wondering here, what are these other ways that the research is done and conveyed and uh, given credit and made part of practice that isn't in the publications? I know in my field, in my experience, the publications are sort of taken as the source of authority um, and by policymakers as well. They say, where, where has this thing, where was it published? Um, perhaps in terms of, the, perhaps they're deferring to the academics in this. Uh, but uh, it, apparently in his field, there are other channels and publications are, are some additional bell or whistle. Um, I, but I still question whether the current publication system being used for so many different things could really be accomplishing the, these many different things very well. So just giving some more of Breakfast's comments, uh, he seems to, he or she said, seems to think that he's skeptical of whether the interventions uh, involved in research on research will be useful. Um, doesn't, uh, doesn't, isn't skeptical of the, of the, ex what seems to be the exclusive focus on problems with publishing and re reproducibility uh, without looking at, let's say, maybe less formal things like sk skill building and internal knowledge and an intuitive feel people get of their colleagues. Um, he talks about labor shortages, uh, lack of money in STEM academia as a consequence of politics, reluctance to fund academic science, is academia to blame? Um, why don't more people strive to become academic STEM sciences? The industry draws them away with pay. School systems at fault. Cultural attitude towards STEM. Uh, Pro-reproducibility measures want to make efficient use of what we already have. Uh, he'd like to see a way to figure out to produce more labor, add more labor and capital to the industry, he or she. Uh, he'd like to see Fewer people going into non-STEM fields, well, more people going into STEM fields would imply fewer people going into non-STEM fields, but, or vice versa, I suppose. Um, comfortable with viewing people's decision to go into many non-STEM fields, maybe he's thinking of science or, uh, sorry, of finance or something, 
as a form of failure to achieve their potential. That failure isn't necessarily their fault, uh, it's the system. Another response, also 13 ups, by Ian David Moss, uh, likes the problem tree, um, the way things were laid out. Uh, and he has written uh, some other things that are along the same lines uh, on his own website, or Medium, sorry, on Medium, the crisis of evidence use, how deep the problem you're describing is, empirical data, amount of waste in our collective knowledge building system is astronomical, says. Uh, he proposed a model of adding decision support wrapper, another medium post, around the analytical activities to ensure relevance to stakeholder concerns. I guess I would worry a little bit about the, um, yeah, what metrics are you going to use in that, uh, what was that problem again that Thoreau was citing? Whatever you use as the metric, people end up uh, gaming. Uh, my brain lost that, uh, but we mentioned it earlier. Um, Benford's Law? No. Was it that? I can't remember. Um, okay, uh, overlaps and issues in the improving institutional decision-making community. A new working group. Uh, okay, um, so that's interesting crossover there. All right, now I want to read, do I have time to read it? It's a rather long, involved, and interesting post by Lynch, a colleague of mine. Uh, so why don't I go ahead and uh, read that bit right now? Of course, I know what Lynch sounds like, but I'm not going to do a vocal rendition for obvious reasons. Lynch wrote seven days ago, nine upvotes. I'm a colleague of David Reinstein, one of the authors of this post. All opinions are my own. Intro. I've accidentally started thinking about meta-science-related questions in the last three months, and it is independently come up in two different projects I was involved in. I think the paradigm I was operating out of is somewhat distant, different than the explicit and implicit mapping here. So I'm sharing it here in the hopes that there can be some useful cross-fertilization of ideas. Note that I've spent very little time thinking about this, likely less than 10 hours total, and even less time reading papers from others in this field. Perspective, toy model, paradigm. The perspective I currently have is viewing research slash science from 10,000 steps up and consider research as an industry that converts money, dollar signs, and highly talented people into eventually actionable insights. And then an important question here is, how can we make the industry of research more efficient? <clears throat> paradigm scope, stroke limitations. Notably, my design is a broader tent in the context of meta-science than prioritization, than prioritization of science stroke meta-science entirely from a purely impartial EA perspective. From an EA perspective, we'd also care about Number one, a cross-cause prioritization, whether the marginal money spent on research is better spent elsewhere. Prioritization in the context of differential technological progress. Whether we're correctly differentially prior progressing research. 
one, that's generically good for the long-term future, whether progress differentially progressing research that's generic, generically good for the long-term future over stuff that's neutral or bad, that's contingently good for the future, given the technologies currently available, in other words, developing technologies in the right order. Link to a, a wiki of differential, or a link tag of differential progress. I'm deliberately using a lower bar. Research as an industry that converts money and highly talented people into eventually actionable insights than effective altruism, because I think it better captures the claimed ethos of researchers and research. However, even within this lower bar, I think having this precise conceptualization, we have an industry that converts resource into actionable insights, how can we make the industry more efficient, helps us prioritize a little within neuroscience. Potentially valuable operations research of research outputs. Things I would guess are quite valuable and understudied from an insight view. Uh, very valuable at the high level. Anything that draws a causal diagram between the inputs of research, e.g. money, highly talented people, and the outputs of research, i.e. studies on how to produce more research. Hiring assessment, hiring assessment literature for what makes top graduate students, postdocs, junior academics. More qualitative, quantitative understanding on truly excellent research teams, linked to Stefan Torges, Torfus, ingredients for creating disruptive research teams. More qualitative, quantitative understanding on truly excellent research teams work. How research should be organized mostly thinking about conceptual organization, but plausible that optimal physical space layout stuff have high returns as well. How researchers should be organized. Management practices for researchers in the context of EA nonprofit research orgs and other think tanks, actual research managers. In the academic context, advisor-advisee relationships. Note that I have not read enough of the literature to be confident that specific claims about neglectedness are true. claiming that there is not enough research on the stuff you just mentioned. I was not sure. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the umbrella of concepts above, I've gestured to above, should be called, but roughly what I'm interested in is meta-science, specifically of research productivity, alternatively, operations research, industrial organization of research outputs. What I mean about this is that I think it's plausible that there are immense tens of billions to trillion dollar bills laying on the floor in figuring out optimal allocation of the above. I think a lot of these decisions are in practice based on law, political incentives, and intuition. I believe, could definitely be wrong, that there's very little careful theorizing and even less empirical data. Other potentially valuable things. Things I also think are very valuable and understudied, but feels more speculative, and I have an even less firm inside view on disruptive open science stuff that tries to solve the real problem rather than dance around, e.g. Aaron Schwartz, someone trying to replicate Sci-Hub now that Sci-Hub isn't accepting new submissions, 
footnote that this is of questionable legality in most jurisdictions. Figuring out models of science outside of academia, e.g. figuring out alternatives to journals like Distill. I think some of the authors of this post is working on this. Uh, yeah, that's something I am working on. Brainstorming ways slash incentive mechanisms and accountability for science funders. By default, I expect the incentives for science funding incorporate some combination of complacency, cover your ass, risk minimization. Note that I have not looked into this at all. Maybe research on good ways to incentivize science via funding prizes, etc. Though I can totally buy that this is already addressed in the mechanism design literature. But to the extent it's addressed but not implemented for reasons other than human nature or political impossibility, we could do empirical research on adoption implementation. Maybe something about impact certificates is related. Research on scientific science communication in a way that's output focused rather than just nice thing to do. So as I linked to the bit.ly slash unjournal, I am thinking about better systems for publishing or giving credit to research and giving feedback on research. Um, what he says about mechanism design, I, I think there is a lot of research in this general area um, but yeah implementation I think I wouldn't even say I mean empirical research I don't know what that means I think I think we would mean implementation trials surveys attitude gauging more sort of the doing the practice than the sort of research as research of in itself um, so yeah so he uh, suggested that suggests that uh, I'm just trying to classify what, what, Lynch, what Lynch is saying here. Um, uh, he's classifying it from a non-EA perspective, but then he's mentioning what EAs would care about in particular, something overlapping what I suggested. Uh, but he also mentioned the idea of developing technologies in the right order. Differential progress is the hastening of risk-reducing progress and delaying of risk-increasing progress. That's something that uh, the long-termists talk about. I, I read about this a bit in the uh, precipice. Um, he thinks that there's a lack of research on just sort of this, uh, on really this input-output, how much money, how many people uh, funded at what times in their careers, in what ways, um, what combinations of research teams, I don't know what maybe what ratio of teaching to research on how that produces research outcomes. Also, maybe hierarchies. I suspect that there is research out there, but I'm also and I feel like I've seen some and I did send some to Lynch, but I'm also not intimately familiar with it. Uh, management practices. Uh, and uh, yeah, so sort of a brass tacks. Uh, input-output approach to this research process as, as maybe a, a, first, a first pass. And he thinks that there's a lot of value on the table thing. And then the other potentially valuable things, he talks about disruptive open science. Uh, so Aaron Schwartz made a whole body of research available to the entire public. I believe he got in a lot of trouble for it and committed suicide. Science outside of academia, 
um, including alternatives to journals, but I, I would suggest also alternatives to training and credibility of researchers or introducing research, building skills in researchers and giving them referencing, re letters of references for academic and non-academic and uh, scientific and non-scientific maybe research paths. Um, accountability for science funders, that's a tricky one. Uh, and yeah, incentivizing science via prizes perhaps as an alternative to patents or perhaps in additional ways. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion of that. All right, what else? Getting back to his reading, to reading here he wrote. Comparatively less interesting, useful things within meta-science. I don't think anything within research on research is obviously oversubscribed in the sense that we as a society should clearly devote less resources to the marginal meta-science project in that domain compared to the marginal resources on random science projects. Nonetheless, here are things that I would guess is marginally are marginally less marginally valuable than things I'm personally interested in within meta-science. More papers on DEI or uh, diversity or demographics of scientists in a way that isn't trying to track outputs. I'm going to look up what DEI stands for. What does DEI stand for? It stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right, that's right. Stuff that tries to define stroke redefines science, replication crisis stuff. I think this is a serious problem that is definitely worth people fixing, but relatively neglected as of 2021. Uh, I would say that that's too broad a brush to say call it stuff. I think that there's a wide, maybe documenting the replication crisis and, and, and its extent, maybe that has enough going on, but ways to fix it and improve science, that's too big a project uh, in my take to say that, okay, there's this replication group we don't have to worry about anymore because I don't think it's been adopted by the mainstream of academics and scientists and people in power and the people who judge those people. Additional EA work. In addition to the points I've identified above, I'd also be excited to see more work on more paradigm conceptualization stuff like what's been done in this post and my comment. In particular, I don't think my ontology is quite ready for prime time yet, and I'd anti-recommend readers doing a bunch of active work based on my framework without thinking through their own frameworks first. Scoping out cross-cause comparison between meta-science and other EA objectives to answer the high-level question of whether marginal money spent on research is better spent elsewhere we may benefit from some clarity on what a unit of meta-science, science output or science output looks like and how much we value a unit of that over other goals, e.g. x-risk, re probability reduction, or lives saved. That seems very challenging. Scoping out mapping differential technological progress, same link as before, in more detail with your post, and especially my comment, presupposes that the technology stroke scientific progress is unambiguously good, if sometimes inefficient or too expensive. But I think my all things considered view is deeply confused here. So more clarity is helpful. I would be very happy to see careful mappings of specific features and projections of what technological advantages, advances we'd like to see in what order. I believe existing work on differential progress 
at least in EA, is quite high level, making it often hard to prioritize whether specific meta-science interventions is even good for the long-term future. Sorry for the uh, pseudo-British Pormi accent. Uh, just trying to make things a bit differentiable and light. Uh, okay, so I'm not going to be able to cover all the comments. Michael A., uh, so C uh, Tilly did respond with general agreement to Lynch, uh, but, but she's been thinking a bit more about institutional global incentives and a bit about improving specific teams, but she, less basis for, she doesn't have a strong basis for ranking these, so on board there. Michael responded to the response to Lynch, uh, I guess suggesting that uh, that these are the same things that 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 or I think uh, Tilly was saying that, that to some extent this has been done in the past. If I understand what she's saying here, uh, but uh, but Michael saying he doesn't think this has been done in the past. Uh, um, it, Michael says, uh, maybe it's not useful for prioritization in the context of differential progress. Uh, uh, any cause area that hasn't received much more across cause prioritization research he's interested in rather than between cause prioritization research. Uh, okay, I, I'm kind of short shrifting Michael's comments. Lynch uh, is asking for feedback. You know, I might be getting the wrong orders here. Michael gives feedback on Lynch's comment saying that uh, uh, some things to highlight here. Um, the comment added things I'd like to see the original post explicitly note in terms of a cross-cause prioritization. He likes the discussion of whether the marginal dollar spent on research is better than elsewhere in the context of differential prioritization in the context of differential technology progress, whether we're correctly differentiately progressing research that's generically good for the long-term future or that's neutral or bad or that's contingent, this is citing again, contingently good for the long-term future given technologies currently available in the right order. So he likes that sort of nudge of the original in that direction. Um, okay. Uh, what else is in the comments? Um, I can't cover. I can't cover them all. It's it's really um, quite involved here. Uh, I might return to some of these comments. I mean, the problem with this wealth of comments is it then ends up in a comments section and it's not incorporated into the body of our knowledge in the same way but how to do that I don't know uh, Aaron Gertler who's uh, a very prolific commenter actually a moderator of the forum uh, he's left a very uh, well very positive response suggesting an essay from a psychology professor about lack of connection with the end user um, who left academia uh, to go into data science uh, and was very skeptical about, I guess, the scientific validity, or I don't know, I'm 
going off of the skin, the scientific validity or practices in, in science. Uh, Peter Slattery responded. Uh, a recent paper Peter Slattery wrote highlights how long it takes for research evidence to enter into healthcare practice. Uh, Harrison D. Uh, Harrison D. Uh, I think I mentioned this one already. Uh, what happens? Hoping to see more discussion of the idea that's been bugging me. What happens when later studies criticize failed to replicate earlier studies' findings? Can people check, basically, if a finding has received some criticism? Uh, how do we know? I mean, right now we track citations, but we, do we track the positivity of citations? Uh, I've recently seen a, maybe he's mentioning this, a technological development in this area where it does try to track whether these citations are, are positive or negative, whether we're tracking the right things, both perhaps less importantly in terms of, but more importantly for incentives in terms of rewarding the researchers, but also in terms of establishing the the credibility of different elements of the scientific, uh, or sorry, the credibility and uh, providing metrics that help us understand how to, uh, how much faith to put in particular findings or particular groupings of findings. Um, okay, uh, yes, this got a lot of comment. Uh, pub peer, James Smith mentions pub peer, which site.ai, which I think is what Harrison, things related to what Harrison D. was interested in. Uh, a few other models are mentioned here, publication models, Publomics, Octopus, and Hypergraph. Um, okay, and James Smith's comments we've read. All right, so this was, was, I thought this was interesting. I'm glad that I was able to get through uh, Cecilia's writing, which I've, you know, left comments on before, but I had not read the full final product yet. Um, similarly with Lynch's, um, Lynch Zhang's comment, uh, which, which was sort of a mini post of its own. Uh, I'd like to, uh, follow up on this more with some other things in this area, but because I think it's an area that's getting more attention and something that I'm personally involved in. So probably I will, uh, start to read my own essay, which benefits from a lot of feedback from others, um, in the next post and possibly, uh, sorry, in the next uh, podcast and possibly bring in some of the framework and discussion that, that Edo has been, uh, has been, Edo, sorry, has been building in our group. Uh, at the same time, I, you know, I want to stay positive and sometimes reading this stuff about how difficult things are and or how cynical academics can be and how the incentives are wrong and how much academics are following venial incentives. Uh, yeah, it can be a bit depressing. I mean, especially coming from that background myself. Um, one thing that I often mention is, or that I often make the point that is that scientists and academics and researchers often start out very motivated by fundamental interest in the subject uh, the beauty, in a sense, of the subject, uh, advancing knowledge, uh, building one's own, uh, I don't know, knowledge, understanding, how do we convey the, the, these, uh, adept, these aptitudes, um, reading, being in a community of scholars, 
offering positive feedback and constructive feedback, building science, having an impact on the world, a positive impact, teaching, um, yeah, you know, helping the long-term future perhaps, uh, just being part of the enterprise of research and science. And in order to get to that point, one, to be able to devote one's time to do that and take be taken seriously and have sustainable, well, have funding to, to live off of, one needs to get through these milestones, which are, or, or hoops, which are often framed in terms of partially box ticking, partially achieving these metrics. Uh, again, we're getting back to so-and-so's law. Uh, was it Benford's law? No, what was, which law was it again? I'm forgetting. Um, but the point is that uh, Goodhart's law, sorry, not Benford's law. Uh, we then, so you go into a PhD program, perhaps highly competitive, perhaps difficult, stressed out if you're working in a lab or stressed out PI or advisor whose supervisor is demanding a lot for you is not happy because he or she is also struggling with their own pressure to publish and get tenure or promotion. Then if you're, they say, oh, here's this stuff you can do. This will, this will get you a job. If you do this sort of stuff, it'll get you a job. Uh, don't worry about that stuff so much. You don't have time to, to worry about that. You don't have time to maybe worry about the integrity of it. This will get you a job, then you can do what you want. Then you might actually get a postdoc and then an academic job. And in either case, you're encouraged. You have to publish. You have to go to these seminars. Uh, you just don't worry about teaching so much. You just have to make the minimum. But you got to get, tick these, get, get published in this journal, and you'll be satisfied. And you'll get, you'll get, uh, you'll get tenure or a job or promotion. And then ultimately. This is what people talk about in academia, is who got what got, quote, what publication or what job position or job offer position promotion. And one starts to substitute in their head uh, these metrics for the original values that you had. You originally prized making a contribution to knowledge, gaining knowledge yourself, working with wise, uh, smart, creative people advancing science that's becomes replaced uh, in my impression experience in one's head with my goals being just getting these thing getting one's papers into particular journals quote getting these publications so the metrics seem to substitute in our internal reward and value system for the perhaps more noble things that originally motivated us um, uh, maybe this is something to do with reinforcement learning in a psychological sense uh, or biological sense, but I think I'm expounding too much here. Uh, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, please do interact. Uh, in Anchor, you can leave messages and voice messages. I'll try to knit those in. Uh, let me know if you have particular content you'd like me to read or discuss. Uh, if you'd like to have a discussion with me, either on the podcast or otherwise. Of course, I'll mention this in the forum. You can also put comments in the forum. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye.